Hi, and welcome to House Call, our podcast designed to help you navigate the New York City real estate market. I'm Andrew Fishkind, as always, here with my co-hosts and partners, Carl Eckroth and Emily Margola. Hello. Hey, everyone. Hello, and thanks for joining us. We're very excited today to have with us Jen Shafrin. Jen is a New York City and New York State consultant and lobbyist who works on a lot of topics of interest to us. But today, specifically, we want to talk about the conversion of commercial properties to residential properties in New York City, which is a topic that has been in the news now for quite some time. But before we jump into that, I'm going to ask Jen to introduce herself. Hi, how you doing? Good to have you here. So great to be here. I'm excited. My husband and I have our, our own firm doing New York City, New York State government relations, lobbying, consulting, public affairs, all that kind of stuff. We treat all of our initiatives as campaigns, so building around all the things that one might need to be able to do that successfully. And I think most recently, one of the things on which I've had the, the pleasure of working on been this project around commercial to residential conversions, which city and state, this is something that touches in terms of how to get this done. Both New York City and New York State needs to be involved in, in getting this done appropriately. So it's been a jigsaw puzzle. And I've, I've always said that any problem worthwhile solving and solving well is difficult to solve. So it's been a labor of love by a lot of people, and I think we're not exactly where we need to be, but I'm excited to talk about that and any other things that may come up. Having worked in this space for a decade and a half or so, I've been involved in in housing and and real estate-related kinds of things for a lot of years in different ways, and so to be working on it from this perspective in kind of a, a new space where we haven't seen in New York City conversion of units outside of down financial district to 9-11. This is like a kind of a new horizon, a new whatever we're going to call it. This is the first time we're getting a real opportunity to change how the direction of housing and real estate in New York City looks, and you only get one bite at that apple. So it's been uh, impactful. We're not quite there yet. There's still a lot more to be done, but I think a lot of the work we did on, on, on this was about educating people, like everyday New Yorkers who are out and about looking for housing, living in housing, maybe not able to make their rent in their housing. Getting the word out about why this is so very important to, to get it right and to get it done has been a fun and, and difficult endeavor. So that's the real lead-in question that we've been talking about as real estate agents and you as a lobbyist and consultant working on this. We, of course, all are paying attention to this issue. But the question that I wanted to try to discuss today was, why should the average New Yorker care about this? I think it could be transformative for the city, as it was for the financial district. But I feel like you probably know a lot more of the ins and outs of the topic than I ever will or care to. (laughs) And um, I think that that's really the question that we should start off with anyway, is why should the average New Yorker even care about this? Does the average New Yorker care about where they live, right? right? Do, do you care about where you're living now, where you're living next, what that means to your income, what that means to your ability to have the kind of family you want, the size, the space? Your Everything at some point does come down to where you are living, whether it's other decisions about decisions about what you make, what you do with your money, what's the, the thing they say, a certain amount of like income goes toward your housing, whatever it is. Like Fundamentally, one of the most important decisions you make and It's difficult to see the broad picture when you're just going to your job, but you're caring for your kids and you're living in your home and you're making your rent payments, your mortgage payments or whatever. This isn't some kind of wonky policy discussion. This is like on the ground. This has the potential to house better, more, more affordably 
New Yorkers, especially at a time that we've got an asylum seeker crisis going on where we're trying to find spaces to house folks. We don't know for how long, but there was an affordability crisis prior. A lot of what I've learned in the course of this past like year, and I'd been working on something related to it, like a Soho NoHo rezoning the previous year, a lot of the conversations I've had, interestingly, haven't just been like, what I know to be the, we need more affordable housing, we need more affordable housing, we need more affordable housing. It's, we also need more housing. And I think any smart person looking through the lens of supporting affordable housing has to also acknowledge the need for just more housing. And that's been kind of a, an education piece for me. And if I don't even have a broad enough lens and I'm focused on this, it's not that everyday New Yorkers need to be following the news on who said what about what and all the politics in Albany or City Hall. It's that after the pandemic, we have the opportunity to really reimagine and re-envision what a lot of things look like, not just in housing, but in, in social programs, in, in how we look at equitable distribution of foods and all these things. With housing, with real estate, these are real properties. These, you can't build a, an apartment on a cloud. There are a certain amount of spaces that you can build in the city of New York. And I think because we finally have acknowledged that people are not going to ever return to the office culture in the way that it was previous, be that good or bad. I mean, people have different opinions about it, but you either figure out a way to repurpose, what do we do with this? We can do something different with this. We can do something better with this. And I think that that opportunity with the conversion of especially some of these older buildings, especially in the garment district, there are people who need to live somewhere and there are people who are not going to the offices they used to go to. So what do we do about it? We need to do that as soon as possible because the longer we wait, the more these buildings depreciate, the like, less time we have to actually like get people moving. Anytime I've had conversations about this, it always seems to go down one of two paths. One path of, oh great, just what we need, more multi-million dollar apartments and make developers wealthy, or affordable housing is important but not in my backyard. You're really talking about the fact that it's both together. Yeah, I mean, I think that any time that we move toward a change in policy or even just erect a building, I think that we need to be thinking about the smartest and best way to integrate affordable units. And I think there's also this big gap between, quote, affordable and this like middle space where a lot of people don't fall into these kinds of lotteries or can't qualify for some of these programs like Section 8, all these different, like Mitchell Lama property, like there's all these different like programs there. And then there's a big gap of people. And I'm, I, I would bet that a lot of folks who are coming to you guys looking for spaces, I would put myself like potentially in that kind of category, or at least at some point in my life, where I'm not sure that you can do that unless you have enough affordable housing stock. But the thing about the, this issue, particularly the conversions, is that the footprint's already there. You've got buildings that are being inefficiently used. They're not tearing down five-story walk-ups along where the elevated lines used to be to put up glass structures. The thing I find the most fascinating about this, there's all these renderings, all these hearings happened where like architects came down and showed what they had done down in the financial district to actually do the repurposing of these buildings. You have to get really creative. And there's so many different kinds of buildings. An office building is a big block. If this were someone's living room, that doesn't really work. So you have to cut through buildings you've got to get really innovative. And there's been some really interesting things. There was one building that somebody who had worked on the building, the architect actually had done whatever, and it was swaying. The building was swaying so much that it would have been appropriate for an office building, because I guess while you're working and you're in your office building, you don't feel the swaying. 
but when you are sleeping, you do. <laughs> so they had to put then all these structures in place to fortify the building. But then if you're going to put all this money into it to invest in the property, you need to be able to sell them and also subsidize for the rental units and preferential rents and all of that for affordable how do we put big blocks in the middle of these gorgeous apartments? So they integrated a very interesting design that had a sway to it that they had in, then incorporated into the branding of the building. So there's like all these different pieces that have been really interesting that we haven't seen what's going to happen because it hasn't happened yet. And it's more complicated now, right? Because if we take a look at what happened post 9-11 in the financial district, almost all of those buildings that were converted were pre-wars. They were pre-war office buildings back in the 20s and 30s, so there was a lot more access to light, air, window, whole nine yards. Garment district has enough pre-wars, so maybe I don't worry about that district as much, but maybe the Midtown Financial District, east side. Got a lot of 50s and 60s post-war buildings there, and, and from what I understand, those are the tougher conversions. A lot more money go into it, goes into it. Like you said, it's like, where do we find that, that place to add that light, air, whole nine yards? Is that a fair statement that it's a little bit more complicated this go-around than it was, say, just solely focused on the financial district with all the pre-wars that they had? I think that when you have a concentrated area, was the case with the post-9-11 financial district, where you have a concentrated area where a lot of buildings are like. But when you're talking about doing this writ large, what we're trying to do here is free up New York City to be able to do this without having to go through onerous issues with the City Planning Commission and all that. You then are opening it up to every building that is zoned and actually has been built to be commercial. That's going to span everything. So I think from a perspective of a developer, I had a conversation with somebody somewhere where they were like, so do you want to force building owners <laughs> to, to convert their building. So I think that that's like definitely unconstitutional, but like also just no. <laughs> These are just programs in order to allow folks to do so. And that involves an incentivization that makes sense monetarily. And it can't be break even plus $1 because that's too much of a headache. Finding the balance in terms of what the package of affordable, how much, at what rate, what do you get in terms of tax incentives or cuts or whatever it is, like along with 421A or J51, you know, like where is the incentivization like line in the sand? Right now, they're not in legislative session. I don't want to get too in the weeds on boring politics. But that in order to get this freed up in the city, to because right now you can't do it, right? It's it's just can't do it. You can do it through a specific, you can go for a ULERP, you can go for a whole round and round and round, but then you add that whole process to the cost benefit to a developer, right? And that's just, it's like a huge headache. To get back to your question, though, I didn't forget that we're not talking about lines in the sand on incentives and, and dry and boring things like that. I think because you're talking about a whole housing stock all around the city, but really you're talking about midtown Manhattan, Manhattan at large, some places in Brooklyn, a couple of pockets in Queens, and one very small area in the Bronx. You're talking about uh, building structures that run the gamut from all anything you can think of, right? So I think when developers are thinking about what's the mold, like you, you can't create a mold for that then. So you have to get creative around each thing you do, which I think does make it even more difficult than just the difficulty of the, the actual integrity of the building. So your role right now is effectively opening up these spaces, these neighborhoods, so that developers then have the choice yeah. and that opportunity to do, the, to do so, which they don't have right now. It's not necessarily a block-to-block -block approach. It's really about tackling the entire city and saying, let's change the zoning, let's change the ability for these developers to do it so that the ones that are really in trouble that maybe have a 50% vacancy rate that makes sense for them, and they may pursue that. That's that, where you're at right now. Is that true, though? Is it not neighborhood by neighborhood? Is it actually the whole city you're trying to take on? Without, again, getting into right. the weeds on it, it's like, in order for this to happen where just, like, developers, owners, Joe Schmo off the street wants right. to come in, buy a building, and then do this, in order to do that, we the package we were working on was the 
first the authorization of commercial to residential as like part of the multiple dwelling law in the state. That's just, and that was not controversial. Everyone was like, yep, that seems like it makes sense. And I said at the beginning of this past legislative session, oh, everyone seems to think this is a great idea. What's going to be the rub? This is clearly going to happen. And then we're at the end of session and it's just not, it's not actually. It's too easy. It's too easy to pass, right? right? (laughs) Well, it became about devils in the details. And I think I appreciate that because, like I said, you get one bite at this, and if you do it wrong, it's going to have, like, major consequences. And the big fear, mostly, that everyone had is not not so much the developers saying we need more and then housers saying more affordable housing. It was more like, where's that tipping point sand line in the sand that we don't end up doing this and zero buildings get built or or converted. We don't want to lose that opportunity by doing the wrong balancing of the incentive, the tax abatement, and then the requirement of how much affordable, how many units, at what AMI, all that kind of stuff. And I know that I don't know enough about this, but my vague recollection was that for the financial district and post 9-11, there were bonds issued to fund a lot of this or to, to make financing of this easier, and that at the moment, anyway, that's not part of the planning or in existence. I believe those would have been federal bonds, okay. right? I thought it was state, but again, I know I don't know. That's Frankly, I, I mean, I was, I was right. not part of those kind of discussions Understood. back Fair then. I would guess, though, but you might be right that it may have been something related to this. It, it, I'm just thinking it was viewed as a, such a national right, crisis right. that... But regardless, my point is that there was, at some level, governmental, not just support, but funding for it, or uh, access to funding for it. Right, and I think, though, that that's how you have to view these these tax abatements. Like, when we talk about programs that are currently out there, if a building does a certain amount of affordable, they get certain amounts of abatements on their taxes. And people think taxes are so dry, and I know I'm here talking about housing, and like, why are you going to bring taxes into this, Jen? But, you know, I learned working in government that, like, taxation is a way to govern. It's a way, it's, all it is is an incentivization or disincentivization of behavior. Robert Moses knows all about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, I, love, I mean, I can't say I love because he's a controversial figure, but I, at one point I was mildly obsessed with with Robert. Well, Ellis. he was effective. Whether you agree with what he did or not, he, he was, was effective very effective. effective. Yes. Very, very effective. Yeah. Too effective, too, too, some would say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's very true. Too effective. We didn't know that was a thing, but it's a thing. You can be too effective. It's funny because I was getting off the, I was coming through the Midtown Tunnel yesterday and I turned to my husband and I said, who designed this? It's just like a mess. That's the one area that I'm just like, this seems like it was like, an afterthought. It's just like all these things converging. I'm on the BQE a couple times a week, yeah. and you're just like, it, somebody just put this in the middle yeah. of these neighborhoods. Right, right. <laughs> there are certain things that I'm like, maybe that's when they finally wrested power from Robert mm-hmm. Moses that his intern finished this project. <laughs> like, <laughs>